0: Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of George Mason University's Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. When it comes to constitutional litigation, we here at the Gray Center most often focus our attention on the Supreme Court's cases. But today we're focusing on a case that's not in the Supreme Court, at least not yet. The case pending in the Second Circuit is Community Housing Improvement Program versus City of New York. In that case, the plaintiffs brought a series of constitutional challenges against New York City's decades-old rent stabilization law, as amended most recently in 2019. The plaintiffs argue that it violates the Due Process Clause, and that it's an uncompensated physical taking, and that it's an uncompensated regulatory taking. Needless to say, these are significant and controversial legal claims, and if they succeed, they could have a major impact on both city governance and on constitutional law. In 2020, the district court dismissed the claims, observing, quote, no precedent binding on this court has ever found any provision of a rent stabilization statute to violate the Constitution. And even if the 2019 amendments go beyond prior regulations, it's not for a lower court to reverse this tide. I should just note, I'm curious to ask my my guest what he makes of that assessment. Well, the plaintiff's appealed to the Second Circuit, which finally heard oral argument in February. To discuss the case, I'm joined by their lead counsel, Andrew Pincus of Mayor Brown. As many of our listeners know, Andy is one of the leading constitutional litigators of our time, having argued 30 cases before the Supreme Court alone. As it happens, Andy and I were part of a panel discussion on the case a few months ago at my other institutional home, AEI. So Andy, it's good to be together again. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Good to see you.
0: Well, before we talk about how oral arguments went, let's talk a little bit about the New York law and the claims that you're raising. Let's start with the law. What is the, the New York uh, rent stabilization law and uh, uh, maybe both in its sort of generalities and also in its most recent amendments?
1: Sure. And, I, you know, I think when people hear rent regulation, they think, oh, this is just a law that, that regulates the levels that, of rent that property owners can charge. But what's critical about the New York law is that it does a lot more than that. Um, its supporters proudly described it when they amended it in 2019 as the most stringent set of rent regulations in history uh, and and it is and our lawsuit uh, challenges the whole package so the way the New York law works is it's triggered by an every three year declaration of a housing emergency by the New York City Council. And that's happened like clockwork for the past 50 years. Uh, and when the rules are in effect, uh, you know, our contention is that the property owner basically loses control uh, of their property. And the purpose and effect of the law really is to commandeer that property in perpetuity as rental units that are controlled by the city and state government. Um, how does that work? First First of all, uh, the property owner must uh, renew a lease for an incumbent tenant unless that tenant has violated the law and must accept successors uh, to that tenant, the tenant's relatives or caregivers uh, that have have lived with him or her uh, and allow them to renew in perpetuity uh, as well. Uh, the property owner can't refuse to renew to take back an apartment for his or her own family's use, uh, can't change the use from residential to commercial rental, can't convert the building to a condominium unless 51 percent of the tenants uh, agree, even if the conversion would allow them to stay in place and can't demolish uh, the property uh, or substantially re- rehabilitate it in a way that would require the, the tenants to leave um, unless it finds housing for all of the tenants at the same or, or a lower uh, regulated rate rent. In addition, it does limit rent increases. The New York City Rent Guidelines Board that sets the increases has a metric of owner costs, and it has allowed increases that are just about exactly half of its own increases, the increases that it measures in, in owner costs. In addition, the new law eliminated a lot of off-ramps from con- regulation, including, for example, if the rent got very high and the incumbent tenant was someone who had a very large income, and one of the things that that you think about rent regulation and also is, oh, are these apartments reserved for lower or middle income people? No, it's a lottery ticket. If you get it, you're lucky. It has no requirements, uh, rent uh, income level requirements in, in terms of who's eligible. And also the 2019 law in particular set very draconian low limits on uh, property owner's ability to recover uh, for renovations to an apartment, you know, which is, of course... Bizarre, because we should all want uh, housing to be kept up. That's the whole name of the game. So that's a brief survey of, of what this law
0: does. And, and how much of that? Just to put a fine point on it, how much of that is sort of the the older sort of rent stabilization law? We'll say the classic version of RSL, and and what is really new in the twenty nineteen amendments. Well, what's
1: happened is the RSL. You know, it's a little bit like uh, an underground structure. It's accreted over the years. Twenty nineteen was a big accretion. The the limits on the recovery of uh Improvement costs. I mean, just to give you an example, fifteen million, a fifteen thousand dollar limit on uh, the recovery of costs when for upgrades when an apartment becomes vacant. Apartments are rented for a long time. Not surprisingly, given all the perks that tenants have, fifteen thousand dollars doesn't come close to what owners typically have to spend to upgrade. But that's all they can recover. It's hard to think of something that's more a taking than saying you can't recover the costs of the capital improvements that you make to your property.
0: And I used to I used to practice in a a, uh, a what's the right word? I, I used to practice in an area of, of heavy economic regulation. I used to be, uh, I used to have FERC practice. And so I have a vague recollection that the Supreme Court said a very long time ago that there was a constitutional problem inherent in not allowing a regulated industry to recover its uh, its its cost of capital. I don't know if that was the HOPE case or which one that was. Um, is that, is, you just, since you rang a bell in my mind, is that is that part of the argument?
1: No, that's exactly right. What the Supreme Court has said is when you have, you know, price regulation, the standard is, reasonable expenses plus a reasonable return on capital. That's what the that's what the government should allow you to recover. And here, we're, we're not close to that.
0: Great. Well, so I, I sketched out just by name your three basic claims, the, the due process claim, physical taking, and regulatory taking. Why don't we just give a sketch of each of those? I, I'd ask you to uh, to rank, to, to just present the claims in order of, say, strongest to weakest. Um, but I, as, a, as a former lawyer, I know it's a very unfair question. So you can take them in any order that you want.
1: I love all my claims, just like I oh. love both my children. <laughs> but I will uh, uh-huh. But I will, uh, I'll try and do that. So f- first up is physical taking. Um, you know, what the court has said, and I'm sure we'll talk about the very recent decision in the Cedar Point case, which, which was a little landmark in, in physical taking jurisprudence. What the court has said is a government authorized non-consensual physical occupation of property constitutes a compensable taking. There's no balancing. The question only question is how much property, how much compensation is owed. And, and, you know, our claim here is this fits right into that paradigm. If the property owner says, I don't want to rent my property anymore to tenants. I want to take it back for myself. I want to tear down my building and build something else. I'd like to change my property to commercial. She can't do any of those things uh, as long as there's an incumbent tenant. And, and we say that is classic physical taking. Um, on the regulatory taking front, you know that's uh, really where the courts look at, at the impact of, of all of the regulations together on the property's value, uh, and applies a multi-factor test that looks on looks at diminution in value, impact on investment-backed expectations, whether there's some countervailing benefit to the property. Uh, and what the the nature of the government intrusion is. And, you know, our claim is if you look at all of those things together, uh, this is the classic regulatory taking. Uh, not only is there tra- this physical intrusion, but there are the draconian limits on the ability to recover through rent, investments to recover increased costs. All of those things together, we did a survey, uh, and rent-regulated properties are are worth up to 50% less uh, than rent, uh, the non-RSL regulated properties. That's a tremendously significant diminution. The intrusion here is physical, the classic kind of taking. Um, and unlike in traditional zoning, where yes, there's a limit on what the property owner can do with her property, but the property owner also gets a benefit. If I'm my property is zoned for residential and the rest of the neighborhood is, true, I can't build a gravel pit, but no one can build a gravel pit next to me. And so they can't diminish the residential value of my property uh, and so that reciprocal advantage that the court calls is a benefit. Here, no reciprocal advantage for people who are burdened by the RSL. They get all the burden, but there's no specific benefit that that is given to them. And, and the other thing that this law does, and we think this is critical to the regulatory taking analysis, is that it sets rent levels not based on what you were talking about, which is reasonable cost, reasonable return on capital. Uh, but it also requires uh, consideration of tenant ability to pay. Uh, and uh, Justices Scalia and O'Connor, in a case called Pinnell, wrote a separate opinion saying that in itself is a taking because that is transferring to property owners a, an obligation that the government as a whole has. And that's one of the claims that we raise case.
0: Andy, um, on the Cedar Point issue, by the way, just for our listeners who aren't up to speed on that one, could you describe just really quickly what the court decided and how it plays into your takings clause case?
1: Sure. So Cedar Point was a a challenge to a California uh, regulation uh, that permitted union organizers, organizers who wanted to organize farm workers, enter farm property uh, up to three hours a day for 120 days a year. Uh, The Court of Appeals, the Ninth Circuit in that case, so that was challenged by the farm owners as a taking, physical taking. Uh, The Ninth Circuit said, no, not a physical taking because it didn't grant the right to enter 24 hours a day, 365 days. A year, so it had to be regu- analyzed as a uh, regulatory taking under the multi factor test that I described. Uh, the Supreme Court reversed and said so it was a physical taking, talked about the critical importance of the right to exclude as one of the most important rights in the property under- owner's bundle of rights the right to exclude others from your property. Um, and that what the government had done here was to take away that right to exclude. The property owners no longer had a right to exclude uh, these farm organizers and therefore uh, the regulation uh, affected a per se taking. And we say, look at this exact parallel. The lease has expired. Under conventional property analysis, the lease expires. The owner has the right to recover use and enjoyment of the property for whatever purposes are otherwise lawful, um, but certainly to exclude the incumbent tenant. But the RSL says, no, 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 you must renew the lease. Uh, except in these very narrow circumstances. And you must continue to do so for that tenant and for successors that qualify under the successors to clause on into the future. And that's a physical taking.
0: A second ago, you said, you know, under a conventional property uh, property law analysis. That makes sense. But I mean, I've never lived in New York, but as I understand it, it's, you know, it's not exactly a, a, a libertarian paradise. It's a pretty, you know, significantly regul- regulated community, especially in terms of housing. And that's, been the case in New York for at least a century, I suppose more at this point. When it, when you, whenever one has a, a takings clause analysis, certainly with regulatory takings, and maybe I'm not sure, but maybe with physical takings, some attention is paid to the background principles of law that were governing uh, before this particular imposition was placed on the property. I know that comes up especially in regulatory takings, where sometimes it, it seems to me it almost becomes a little bit circular, right? Asking what's the, what was the background principles of law, or at least the, what was just the the court's formulation of at one point, um, uh, reasonable investment-backed expectations. That, how does that play into your takings clause analysis? I mean, surely none of, unless unless some of the landlords in New York have, have held or owned these properties for decades upon decades or, or more, they, they purchased this property knowing it was going to be heavily regulated, knowing it was going to be subject or at least possibly subjected to rent stabilization. The specifics of the law would change over time, but New York's have rent control for a very, very long time. How does that factor into the reasonable expectations expectations and the legal rights of, of the property owners?
1: Well, it's interesting that the Supreme Court has grappled with that both in the physical and the regulatory takings context. And in the physical takings context, in another physical takings case called Horn, which dealt with raisins, not not real property, but actual physical property, grapes that were turned into raisins. Uh, the government, the federal government there had a program uh, that required uh, raisin growers to actually contribute some of their raisin crop to the federal government for, uh, because of a a raisin marketing order that was designed to uh, prevent a glut on the raisin market, and the challengers in that case didn't want to do that. They didn't want their raisins literally taken by the federal government. And one of the arguments that the government made was, you grew these raisins after you knew uh, that this regulation was in effect, so you have no takings claim. And and the the chief justice who wrote the opinion for the court said, the government let them grow grapes uh, or let them make wine. Defense didn't really work. Uh, and I think that's clear that in the physical takings context, at least, the government can't rely on those kinds of arguments. In the regulatory takings uh, context, it's a little more complicated. Uh, the Justice Scalia writing for the court in a, in a case called Palazzolo uh said you can't grandfather takings uh claims out of existence. Uh and he said the fact that someone took the property with knowledge of the regulation shouldn't be considered. In some subsequent cases, the court said, well, maybe uh Justice Kennedy, writing for the course in the Muir Court in the Muir case, said, well, maybe it should be considered, uh, but it's certainly not dispositive. It's a factor. Uh and I think here the draconian nature of the regulations and the fact that they have compounded over time uh really makes it very difficult for New York to rely on. Uh, as a factor. And, and what happens then, of course, is that the government basically can launder uh, unconstitutional laws uh, once there are changes in ownership, which is the exact point that, that Justice Scalia made in, in his opinion for the court. And, and we, shouldn't, we shouldn't want that to be able to happen because that just immunizes unconstitutional government action against what the Constitution requires, which is either you can't do it or you have to pay just the compensation.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the kind of thing that Justice Scalia would have called a, uh, like an adverse possession theory of, of government power that if it just holds out long enough, uh, then, it, then the power is rightfully its. Your third claim, the due process claim, that's a rational basis claim, right? You're, you're arguing that there's no rational connection uh, between the, the law is passed and is justified versus its actual effects in the real world. Could you maybe explain that a little bit? And if you wouldn't mind, uh, I know you're not the spokesman for the city of New York, but could you maybe just give a sense of the justifications that New York has put forward for the, the rent stabilization law over time and, and then explain why they, they fall short?
1: Sure. sure. And, and it is a rational basis claim, although we, we say, you know, that is something that the Supreme Court might want to look at, you know, given that property rights are protected by the Constitution and, and, and here are some quite direct intrusions on them. But we recognize that, that lower courts don't have the ability to change there. So, you know, let me sort of tick through some of the justifications that have been raised and, and why they don't work. You know, first, of course, oh, we're, we're, we're making it possible for lower and middle income people to live in New York. That's a critical goal. Um, but the problem, as we talked about earlier, is nothing limits this program to lower and middle income people. And uh, our complaint, which is very detailed, we wanted the courts to have a very detailed, uh, more than 100 page uh, complaint that recites a lot of facts uh, so that they could look at the, at the legal claims against the background of what's happening in the real world. Uh, but in the real world, both um, empirical surveys and uh, anecdotal evidence uh, is that there are a lot of quite wealthy people living in these apartments. Uh, and getting the benefit of this program. And it's hard for the government to say that a program that doesn't have any uh, income level or other check is really designed to do something that that it clearly doesn't do. Um, The other argument that they've advanced is, oh, this is actually protecting, alleviating the housing shortage by making sure that we can preserve housing uh, for rental purposes and it's not diverted for for other purposes. The problem is uh, that, again, we looked at the real world. If you look at the zoning, envelope, the buildable space on a piece of property in RSL regulated properties versus non-RSL properties, there's a big chunk of zoning envelope left that could be built and could create, our estimate was up to 100,000 new units in in New York City uh, if they were all used. But of course, the obstacles to to renovation or to demolishing and new construction make it virtually impossible for people to make that investment. Um, The other thing to talk about is this is uh, really a zero- sum game. To the extent there are benefits to people who are in RSL housing, that just drives up the price that people pay in uh, non-regulated housing, which is why, you know, as we discuss, economists don't agree about a lot, but there's overwhelming agreement by economists that rent control and this kind of rent regulation does nothing to protect lower-income people or to produce more housing. So the government ultimately falls back on stability, neighborhood stability. Uh, this is good because it keeps people in apartments, and that's a good thing for neighborhood stability. Um, That's certainly true uh, uh, objectively, uh, but... Who is being kept in apartments here? This is really uh, something that discriminates against newcomers to New York. Uh, it discriminates probably in favor of older people versus younger people, and and we really question whether, in this context, that's uh, a credible, valid government justification when it's having all of those adverse consequences. When you
0: sort of invite the Supreme Court to maybe rethink the rational basis test a little bit, if necessary, and and put some more teeth in it, I'm sure uh, my friend Randy Barnett, uh, I'm sure, is busy. Ears are burning when he when he hears that. Um, that be music to his ears. But you know, practically speaking, you know, this is an area. This is not this is an issue that that obviously carries over into administrative law, and we'll we'll touch touch on that a little bit more later. You know, this is not an administrative law case, but it is in many respects an administrative state case. Maybe we'll just to dwell on one point for now. Uh, it's true that economists are generally critical of rent control or rent stabilization rules, uh, and it's true that, as far as I can see, that New York's justification for the law over time really don't withstand real scrutiny, you know, when you compare them to the real world. But but the fact is, New York's government was elected to govern, to legislate, to regulate. Uh, and traditionally we let the elected parts of our government have a pretty wide berth when it comes to making judgment calls on disputed theories of economics on on other sort of disputed policy or value judgments uh, anytime you have a rational basis claim uh, anytime you have an arbitrary and capricious claim in administrative law you're effectively asking the court to say that even if the government has offers some justification that it just doesn't pass the the, say, the the policy smell test, um, how far do you think the court has to go to really second-guess the regulators here? Or are you really saying that it's just so cut and dry that there isn't sort of a value judgment, a disputed policy or economic judgment here for the court to make?
1: Well, I guess two responses to that. With respect to our takings claims, there is a clear constitutional right uh, and, and a right that really has an extremely important purpose. I mean, the, the, the critical underlying purpose takings clause is that... That government shouldn't be allowed, to force the few, to bear the costs uh, of government that or of a government program that, in fairness, should be borne by the populace of the whole or the government of the whole through taxation. And I think this is a classic kind of program that falls right within that. I mean, the government, the proponents of the 2019 law, and even some of the government uh, briefs in this case, you know, talk about the government's need to preserve rental housing. Well, the government can preserve rental housing if it owns it. But of course, it doesn't doesn 't own this property and, and what it 's really doing is saying we have a great need for rental housing, we maybe we have a need for housing that 's specially targeted at lower and middle people we'd prefer not to have to collect the taxes uh, that would pay for that housing. So we'd rather just force you to do it in this sort of off-the-books transaction. And that's precisely what uh, the takings clause is designed to prevent again. So I think here we have a a clear constitutional directive to scrutinize these kinds of decisions in particular.
0: So in the introduction, uh, I quoted a line from the district court, and it appears in your reply brief as well, which is where I first spotted it, where the district court said uh, that that your case invites the court out to an area of law where there isn't clear precedent, and it's not the job of the lower courts to to make precedent. I knew that's the Supreme Court's job. I gather from the the ten of our conversation so far that you don't you don't quite agree with the, the district court's characterization of this. Uh, is that right? I mean, how much how much of this case really is governed as you see it by clear precedent? Uh, how much of it is governed by sort of strong precedent in your favor? And how much of this really is an area that the courts have just left open where the courts gonna have to make a judgment call one way or the other?
1: Well, I, I guess a, a couple of things um, on the physical takings claim. There, there's a case called Yee uh, that the Supreme Court decided a couple of decades ago that, that dealt uh, with rent regulation. was rent regulation of mobile home pads in California. And, and what the yeah, that was also a physical takings claim. Uh, and the court said in that case, well, we're not going to find a physical taking. But it said what's important here is that the property owner, uh, even though they said we're not going to find a physical taking, even though the property owner doesn't necessarily control who the renter is because the the party who rented the pad from the Owner of the mobile home pad could rent it to someone else without the property owner's approval, Um, and the court said we're not going to hold that to physical taking. But critical is the fact that this law allows the property owner to repossess the property to withdraw it from the rental market in six to twelve months. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the court was pretty clear in in intimating that if that wasn't true, there would be a physical taking, Uh, and that's exactly as you know what the new how I've described it. That's just what the New York law does. So we think that pretty clear precedent, Cedar Point, even clearer although decided after the district court's decision, in fairness to the district court. The other thing I would say about takings law generally is, you know, for for many years, uh, as you know, we had a very strange situation with respect to takings claims in the federal courts, which is the Supreme Court had decided this Williamson County case, which said, oh, sorry, unlike every other claim of constitutional violation, if you have a takings claim, you have to exhaust your state court remedies before you could come to federal court. And guess what people found? They went to state court nine times out of 10, maybe 99. Nine times out of 100, the state court said there was no taking. And then when you went back to federal court, the federal court said, oh, that's race judicata of your taking. So sorry, you don't have a point here. And, And the Supreme Court a couple of terms ago in the Nick case said, we're not going to relegate takings claims to second-class status anymore. We're going to allow them to be brought under Section 1983, like every other constitutional claim. And so we're sort of in a new world. There isn't a lot of takings jurisprudence in the lower federal courts um, for that reason. And so it's true there were some older Second um, circuit decisions uh, that I think had different focuses of challenge to the RSL, uh, also challenges before some of the Supreme Court decisions that we've been talking about. Uh, but, you know, we think we have both in terms of existing precedent and where the precedent is going, very strong arguments uh, on the theories that, that that we're asserting.
0: And for folks who want to look it up, the Yi case that you referred to is Yi versus City of, Iscon- of Escondido from 1992. Well, um, you just had oral argument. We're recording this in early March. You had oral argument in Mid February, before the Second Circuit, the panel, if I remember correctly, is Judge Calabresi, Judge Carney, and Judge Parker. Um, as a as a former lawyer, I, I I wouldn't come out and just ask you. So, how did it go? Um, but you know, how did it go? <laughs> it was
1: a pretty spirited argument. Um, you know, the the court ended up devoting twice as much time to the argument as as the, as had been originally allocated. So that's an indication of interest. I think, you know, some of the questions indicated, uh, a, a bit of skepticism, uh, along the lines that the district court expressed. Maybe this is something that the Supreme Court should decide if, if it's an area that courts are supposed to go into. Uh, but I think we certainly had a chance to air our, air our claims. I mean, as a lawyer, I would always love more time. Uh, but I, but I think the, the panel really dug into the issues and, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, but I, I think it definitely, uh, wasn't a case that that sort of got dismissed with the back of the
0: hand. Thinking about the broader implications here of the case, I'm just curious to what extent you've, you've, you and your colleagues have thought through and, and written about the broader implications, whether it's implications in other cities, whether it's implications for other areas of city governance. Uh, your point earlier about, you know, eliminating this law in New York might create space literally for for more development in a a place where it's really needed. Obviously, that's an issue in a number of cities, San Francisco being the the most famous example, but elsewhere. And so just thinking through this case and knowing that this Statute is different. This, its circumstances are different. Do you have any kind of sketch of, of what this might mean or might not mean for other cities or other areas of city regulation?
1: Well, I, I think in terms of other cities' rent regulation, um, one, we had a number of uh, amicus briefs uh, in the case, actually 10 amicus briefs uh, supporting our side of the case. One of them was from property owners in California and, and San Francisco, uh, pointing out the, some of the similar similarities between the laws that they uh, are regulated under and and New York's law. So I think this could have some implications at least for the localities that have uh the kind of um very broad regulation that re- that really goes beyond rent levels and regulates, you know, requires uh that properties essentially be dedicated uh for the long term uh to rental purposes. Um in in terms of, of broader issues? You no, know, I, I think there are all kinds of property-related regulations uh, that are sort of out there. I mean, the, the Raisins case that I described is, is just one example where I think uh, there's more focus Uh, than there used to be on uh, the extent to which whether they're federal, state or city regulations really single out property owners uh, for significant burdens and and whether the takings clause is implicated by those kinds of
0: regulations. And then just panning back one step further before we go, as I mentioned a couple of times, you know, needless to say, this is not the classic subject matter of the Gray Center's focus. Uh, We tend to focus on the on administrative law and regulation, especially at the federal level, Um, although we focus sometimes in, in state law. Your own career, obviously, you've focused on quite a lot of federal regulation. You've worked on constitutional regulatory issues that just span the range of the federal government. I remember just a few years ago, your work on the, the CFPB, an, an agency that I used to litigate against myself. You, I think you were involved in the challenges to the, their, the, the CFPB's assertion of, of authority over auto loans, if I remember correctly. Is that, that's right, right? Um, arbitration. Uh, that's right. And also to some extent, uh, to
1: some extent on, on auto loans. We Never got the litigation on that one. We did on, yeah. the, on the arbitration one until the Congress intervened under the Congressional Review Act. Right.
0: Well, so you're, you've you've covered any number of federal regulatory and constitutional issues, and you also served in government in the in the Department of Commerce, right in the late 1990s. So you've you've served in government as well. Uh, I'm just curious how you think about this case and this issue in New York, and any connections that you see to the sorts of trends that have circled around administrative of law over the years, and especially in recent years. At the end of the day, there's some commonality in terms of disputes over economic regulation, over the process over the the sort of stance of the court vis-a-vis the administrators and 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 sort of notions of deference, whether it's chevron deference or deferential rational basis review, uh, this question's already gone on longer than I meant it to. so just in general, how does this fit into the broader issues of administration that you've been grappling with over the years?
1: Well, as I said before, you know we we do have a explicit constitutional right here, which I think distinguishes it. I, I do think um, that there is there's a tension here, you know, and, and you pointed out at the beginning. On the one hand, we, we don't want um, to say that, you know, unelected judges are going to be able to override the judgments of uh, administrative actors. And I think we need agencies for, for all levels of government to function effectively. But you know, I, I think that the the other challenge is we want agencies to articulate their reasoning. Look as as the the chief justice said in the DACA in the in the Regents case uh, a couple of years ago. You know, we want them to consider the whole problem and address it. And I I think that's important. On the other hand, you know, looking at decisions in retrospect is a little bit, I think, like uh, analyzing questions of statutory interpretation after the statute has been enacted. Sometimes if you're a lawyer and you've never participated in the legislative drafting process, you say, oh, my goodness, how could these people not have thought about this problem when they drafted this statute? And then if you've participated in the process, as I had the opportunity to do when I, when I was in government, and I, I know you probably have as well, it's not that easy to anticipate every different circumstance and that they arise in the future to which the statutory language uh, will apply. So I think courts really have to strike a balance between saying we want agencies to grapple with the problems and address them and not putting them into a straitjacket so that it's a sort of a gotcha game and if you find some little thing or even a reasonable exercise thing that the agency didn't talk about, they have to go back to the beginning because that process, understandably and appropriately, is a tough process to go through, and we don't want to cripple the government.
0: And in terms of long, tough processes, I know your case has been pending for quite a while. You filed it back in 2019. I think you filed your appeal about a year ago, so you had to wait a little bit for oral argument. I hope you get your decision, uh, for better or for worse, uh, a little sooner than that. And I know all of us will be following with great interest uh, whatever comes next. But in the meantime, Andy, thanks again for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Great conversation.
0: Wonderful. And thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters.